This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Napoleon of Notting Hill by G. K. Chesterton Book One, Chapter Three The Hill of Humor In a little square garden of yellow roses beside the sea, said Auburn Quinn, there was a nonconformist minister who had never been to Wimbledon. His family did not understand his sorrow or the strange look in his eyes, but one day they repented their neglect, for they heard that a body had been found on the shore, battered but wearing patent leather boots. As it happened, it turned out not to be the minister at all, but in the dead man's pocket there was a return ticket to Maidstone. There was a short pause, as Quinn and his friends Barker and Lambert went swinging on through the slushy grass of Kensington Gardens. Then Auburn resumed. That story, he said reverently, is the test of humor. They walked on further and faster, wading through higher grass as they began to climb a slope. I perceive, continued Auburn, that you have passed the test, and consider the anecdote excruciatingly funny, since you say nothing. Only coarse humor is received with pothouse applause. The great anecdote is received in silence, like a benediction. You felt pretty benedicted, didn't you, Barker? I saw the point, said Barker, somewhat loftily. Do you know, said Quinn, with a sort of idiot gaiety, I have lots of stories as good as that. Listen to this one. And he slightly cleared his throat. Dr. Polycarp was, as you all know, an unusually sallow bimetallist. There, people of wide experience would say, there goes the sallowest bimetallist in Cheshire. Once this was said so that he overheard it, it was said by an actuary tinder in a sunset of mauve and grey. Polycarp turned upon him. Sallow, he cried fiercely, sallow, quius tulerat gratios de sedenchoni querentis. It was said that no actuary ever made game of Dr. Polycarp again. Barker nodded with a simple sagacity. Lambert only grunted. Here is another, continued the insatiable Quinn. In a hollow of the grey-green hills of rainy Ireland lived an old, old woman, whose uncle was always Cambridge at the boat race. But in her grey-green hollows she knew nothing of this. She didn't know that there was a boat race. Also she did not know that she had an uncle. She had heard of nobody at all except of George I, of whom she had heard, I know not why, and in whose historical memory she put her simple trust. And by and by, in God's good time, it was discovered that this uncle of hers was not really her uncle, and they came and told her so. She smiled through her tears and said only, Virtue is its own reward. Again there was a silence, and then Lambert said, it seems a bit mysterious. Mysterious, cried the other. The true humor is mysterious. Do you not realize the chief incident of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries? And what is that? asked Lambert shortly. It is very simple, replied the other. Hitherto it was the ruin of a joke, that people did not see it. Now it is the sublime victory of a joke, that people do not see it. 
Humour, my friends, is the one sanctity remaining to mankind. It is the one thing you are thoroughly afraid of. Look at that tree. His interlocutors looked vaguely toward a beach that leant out toward them from the ridge of the hill. If, said Mr. Quinn, I were to say that you did not see the great truths of science exhibited by that tree, though they stared any man of intellect in the face, what would you think or say? You would merely regard me as a pedant with some unimportant theory about vegetable cells. If I were to say that you did not see in that tree the vile mismanagement of local politics, you would dismiss me as a socialist crank with some particular fad about public parks. If I were to say that you were guilty of the supreme blasphemy of looking at that tree and not seeing in it a new religion, a special revelation of God, you would simply say I was a mystic and think no more about me. But if, and he lifted a pontifical hand, if I say that you cannot see the humor of that tree and that I see the humor of it, my God, you will roll about at my feet. He paused a moment and then resumed. Yes, a sense of humor, a weird and delicate sense of humor, is the new religion of mankind. It is towards that men will strain themselves with the asceticism of saints. Exercises, spiritual exercises, will be set in it. It will be asked, can you see the humor of this iron railing? Or can you see the humor of this field of corn? Can you see the humor of the stars? Can you see the humor of the sunsets? How often I have laughed myself to sleep over a violet sunset. Quite so, said Mr. Barker, with an intelligent embarrassment. Let me tell you another story. How often it happens that the MPs for Essex are less punctual than one would suppose. The least punctual Essex MP, perhaps, was James Wilson, who said, in the very act of plucking a poppy. Lambert suddenly faced round and stuck his stick in the ground in a defiant attitude. Auberon, he said, chuck it. I won't stand it. It's all bosh. Both men stared at him, for there was something very explosive about the words, as if they had been corked up painfully for a long time. You have begun, Quinn, no? I don't care a curse, said Lambert violently, whether I have a delicate sense of humor or not. I won't stand it. It's all a confounded fraud. There is no joke in those infernal tales at all. You know there isn't, as well as I do. Well, replied Quinn slowly, it is true that I, with my rather gradual mental process, did not see any joke in them. But the finer sense of Barker perceived it. Barker turned a fierce red but continue to stare at the horizon. You ask, said Lambert, why can't you be like other people? Why can't you say something really funny or hold your tongue? The man who sits on his hat in a pantomime is a long sight funnier than you are. Quinn regarded him steadily. They had reached the top of the ridge, and the wind struck their faces. Lambert, said Auburn, you are a great and good man, though I am hanged if you look it. You are more. You are a great revolutionist or deliverer of the world, and I look forward to seeing you carved in marble between Luther and Danton, if possible, in your present attitude, the hat slightly on one side. I said, as I came up the hill, that the new humor was the last of the religions. You have made it the last of the superstitions. But let me give you a very serious warning. 
Be careful how you ask me to do anything, Autre, to imitate the man in the pantomime and to sit on my hat, because I am a man whose soul has been emptied of all pleasures but folly, and for two pence I'd do it. Do it, then, said Lambert, swinging his stick impatiently. It'd be funnier than the bosh you and Barker talk. Quinn, standing on the top of the hill, stretched his hand out toward the main avenue of Kensington Gardens. Two hundred yards away,' he said, "'are all your fashionable acquaintances, "'with nothing on earth to do but stare at each other and at us. "'We are standing upon an elevation under the open sky, "'a peak, as it were, of fantasy, a Sinai of humour. "'We are in a great pulpit or platform, "'lit up with sunlight, and half London can see us. "'Be careful how you suggest things to me, "'for there is in me a madness which goes beyond martyrdom, "'the madness,' of an utterly idle man. I don't know what you're talking about, said Lambert contemptuously. I only know I'd rather you stood on your silly head than talk so much. Auberon, for goodness sake, cried Barker, springing forward, but he was too late. Faces from all the benches and avenues were turned in their direction. Groups stopped and small crowds collected and sharp sunlight picked out the whole scene in blue, green and black like a picture in a child's toy book. And on the top of the small hill, Mr. Auburn Quinn stood with considerable athletic neatness upon his head and waved his patent leather boots in the air. For God's sake, Quinn, get up and don't be an idiot, cried Barker, wringing his hands. We shall have the whole town here. Yes, get up, man, said Lambert, amused and annoyed. I was only fooling. Get up. Auberon did so with a bound, and, flinging his hat higher than the trees, proceeded to hop about on one leg with a serious expression. Barker stamped wildly. "'Oh, let's go home, Barker, and leave him,' said Lambert. "'Some of your proper and correct police will look after him. Here they come.' Two grave-looking men in quiet uniforms came up the hill toward them. One held a paper in his hand. "'There he is, officer,' said Lambert cheerfully. We ain't responsible for him. The officer looked at the capering Mr. Quinn with a quiet eye. We have not come, gentlemen, he said, about what I think you are alluding to. We have come from headquarters to announce the selection of His Majesty the King. It is the rule inherited from the old regime that the news should be brought to the new sovereign immediately, wherever he is. So we have followed you across Kensington Gardens. Barker's eyes were blazing in his pale face. He was consumed with ambition throughout his life. With a certain dull magnanimity of the intellect, he had really believed in the chance method of selecting despots. But this sudden suggestion, that the selection might have fallen upon him, unnerved him with pleasure. "'Which of us?' he began, and the respectful official interrupted him. Uh, "'Not you, sir, I am sorry to say.' If I may be permitted to say so, we know your services to the government, and we should be very thankful if it were. The choice has fallen. God bless my soul, said Lambert, jumping back two paces. Not me. Don't say I'm an autocrat of all the rushes. No, sir, said the officer, with a slight cough and a glance toward Auburn, who was at that moment putting his head between his legs and making a noise like a cow. The gentleman whom we have to congratulate seems at the moment er occupied. Not Quinn, 
shrieked Barker, rushing up to him. It can't be! Auberon, for God's sake, pull yourself together. You've been made king. With his head still upside down between his legs, Mr. Quinn answered modestly, I am not worthy. I cannot reasonably claim to equal the great men who have previously swayed the scepter of Britain. Perhaps the only peculiarity that I can claim is that I am probably the first monarch that ever spoke out his soul to the people of England with his head and body in this position. This may in some sense give me, to quote a poem that I wrote in my youth, a nobler office on the earth than valor, power of brain or birth, could give the warrior kings of old the intellect clarified by this posture. Lambert and Barker made a kind of rush at him. Don't you understand, cried Lambert, it's not a joke. They've really made you king. By gosh, they must have rum taste. The great bishops of the Middle Ages, said Quinn, kicking his legs in the air as he was dragged up more or less upside down, were in the habit of refusing the honor of election three times and then accepting it. A mere matter of detail separates me from those great men. I will accept the post three times and refuse it afterwards. Oh, I will toil for you, my faithful people. You shall have a banquet of humor. By this time he had been landed the right way up, and the two men were still trying in vain to impress him with the gravity of the situation. Did you not tell me, Wilfred Lambert, he said, that I should be of more public value if I adopted a more popular form of humor? And when should a popular form of humor be more firmly riveted upon me than now, when I have become the darling of a whole people? Officer, he continued, addressing the startled messenger, are there no ceremonies to celebrate my entry into the city? Ceremonies, began the official with embarrassment, have been more or less neglected for some little time, and Auburn Quinn began gradually to take off his coat. All ceremony, he said, consists in the reversal of the obvious. Thus men, when they wish to be priests or judges, dress up like women. Kindly help me on with this coat. And he held it out. But, your majesty, said the officer, after a moment's bewilderment and manipulation, you're putting it on with the tails in front. The reversal of the obvious, said the king calmly, is as near as we can come to ritual with our imperfect apparatus. Lead on. The rest of that afternoon and evening was to Barker and Lambert a nightmare which they could not properly realize or recall. The king, with his coat on the wrong way, went toward the streets that were awaiting him, and the old Kensington Palace, which was the royal residence. As he passed small groups of men, the groups turned into crowds, and gave forth sounds which seemed strange in welcoming an autocrat. Barker walked behind his brain reeling, and as the crowds grew thicker and thicker, the sounds became more and more unusual, and when he had reached the great marketplace opposite the church, Barker knew that he had reached it, though he was roods behind, because a cry went up such as had never before greeted any of the kings of the earth. The End of Chapter 3 End of Book 1